Good evening, good day, everybody. Great to be back. Welcome to episode eight of hashtag Ask Abhijit. Today is the astrophysics special. So today is going to be a 60-minute episode. We're going to keep it fast and snappy. And I am so happy that I've got so many questions from you. Very interesting and intelligent questions. Uh, it would, I think it will take me 10 episodes to cover them all. all. And I can sense that these are the some of the questions that you were not allowed to ask in school, etc. So I will answer your questions. So let's get right into it with question number one, which is by Akshat Tundia. Akshat asks, is if the observable universe is 60 billion light years wide or in diameter, so how come it is just 13.8 billion years old? That's a very good, very intelligent question. So the universe, as we know from our best understanding, is 13.8 billion years old, approximately. So if light travels for 13.8 billion years, then the edge of the universe from where we are should be 13.8 billion light years away. So the radius of the universe should be 13.8 billion years, and the diameter should be approximately 28 billion years uh, 28 billion light years or so. However, what we find is that the diameter is about 90 billion light years. So the radius is about 46 or so billion light years, the radius of the observable universe. So what explains this incredible discrepancy? And the explanation is that the expansion of the universe is accelerating and the space-time, that the, the fabric, fabric of the universe, space-time, it can expand at speeds that are greater than the speed of light. And that does not violate the laws of physics. So that is the thing. So we know that there is this cosmic universal speed limit in our universe, the speed of light, which is about 300,000 uh, kilometers per second. That is the speed of light. And that is the fastest that anything can travel inside the universe, inside space-time, inside the fabric of space-time. And it's only massless particles, such as the photon, that can travel at this speed. Massive particles uh, can never reach that speed because of the laws of relativity. If you study special relativity, it becomes very simple, very obvious why uh, massive particles cannot attain the speed of light because to attain that speed, they would have need to have an, their mass would increase to infinity essentially. So massive particles can't travel that fast. So we have this universal speed limit, and yes, and yet the fabric of space-time itself has no such speed limit. It can expand at any speed. So, for example, when the universe was just a millisecond old, just a millisecond after the Big Bang, the cosmic horizon was about a light year wide. It was about the horizon that you could see, the how far you could see was about a light year away. So it the universe, the fabric of space-time expanded superluminally. So right after the, so the, the Big Bang, there is there was this period called cosmic inflation in which the universe expanded to an enormous degree. And this was a superluminal expansion. It expanded at thousands of times the speed of light. So while we cannot travel within the fabric of space-time, which is the stage upon which everything happens, while we cannot travel within space-time at the speed of light, if we are massive objects, nevertheless, the fabric of space-time itself can expand at any rate. And as we know, as, as I hope you know, 
the universe is expanding and the expansion of the universe is accelerating so it's expanding faster and faster at at the largest scales of the, of of the universe so at the local scale where we are in this room where i'm sitting i don't see i don't observe any expansion of space time because i because of what and why there is so i will get into that in uh, in a few minutes so this expansion happens only at the very largest scales at the scales of uh, galaxy superclusters and larger than that so because the universe has been expanding and the, the universe the ex, ex, expansion is accelerating and it can actually expand faster than the speed of light that's why what we observe is that despite the universe being only 13.8 billion years old the cosmic horizon the ob- the horizon of the observable universe has a radius of about 46 billion light years or a diameter of roughly 90 billion light years so that's a very intelligent question a very incisive question and th- these are the kind of questions that lead us to understand physics and science and nature better so great question and let's get on with the next question So this is by Jay Saxena. How vast is our universe? How can astrophysicists assume that we have discovered this amount of space only if we do not know how vast is our universe? So we have the cosmic horizon, which is the observable universe, which is the furthest we can look with uh, any instrument that we have, and that's about forty-six billion light years away. So uh, let me share an image with you. So this here is an is an approximate representation of this. So the size, the present size of the observable universe is about forty six billion light years. We know this because that's how far we can see. We can calculate the distance using uh, techniques such as redshift, in which uh, light is it gets its uh, wavelength gets stretched out as it travels because of the expansion of space time. so we can calculate how far away a certain object is based on the redshift that we see in the in the light spectra from that object for example a distant galaxy so we know that the cosmic horizon the observable horizon the size of the observable universe is about 46 billion light years in diameter it's a sphere of of radius 46 billion light years the amount of this of this observable universe that we can actually reach at the speed of light is about 13.8 light years uh, or if you just uh, consider the expansion of space time etc it would be about 14.5 billion light years so that's how far we can send light further than that we cannot even send light because the universe is expanding further than that it speeds faster than light itself now how f- how large is the actual universe well we don't have any clue at all the actual universe which lies beyond the cosmic horizon could be enormous and we can only speculate and even those speculations will be will be baseless because we have no observational evidence or data or any sort of uh, fundamental understanding of what would be a tentative or rough size of the universe that lies beyond the cosmic horizon so we don't know it could even be infinite who knows we don't know right now so we are limited by our observations by our limitations to observing a a, a slice a, a certain portion of the actual universe and that is a sphere of radius 46 billion light years so we 
we don't assume that we have discovered a certain amount of space we can calculate it using techniques such as redshift so we know how far is the furthest uh, object that we have ever seen which is a, a very distant and a very faint galaxy and also there's another technique we, there is something called cosmic microwave background radiation which is something i'll go into later that also gives us a certain kind of uh, certain kind of handle on how old the universe is and certain parameters of the universe so we have these different disparate clues and we use these clues to put together a rudimentary uh, tentative understanding of the universe and and what we have achieved in the past century or so has been significant progress we understand the universe reasonably well we have uh, we have good uh, reasonably good theory of how the universe uh, formed the so called big bang theory we have the standard model of particle physics we have the theory of general relativity and we have quantum mechanics so all of these put together give us a good idea of how the universe actually is but there is a lot to discover as we shall see in subsequent questions so this is a good question great so this is by anish khare what's the difference between dark matter and antimatter or is it the same thing well dark matter and antimatter are not the same thing and so what is dark matter dark matter is a missing uh, it is a missing it is an it is an unidentified component of the mass energy composition of the universe so let me uh, show you let me share a screen with you okay let's take a look at this so this is the matter energy mass energy composition of the universe about 4.9% of the universe is ordinary matter so this is everything we can see in the universe all the planets and stars and nebulae and galaxies and all other luminous matter this is just 4.9% of the actual universe so we understand less than 5% of the actual universe right more than 95% of the universe is entirely unknown to us we do not have the even the basic understanding of what it is we know the composition so about 26.8% or thereabouts is what we call dark matter and the remaining portion about 68% is what is called dark energy now dark energy is a really mysterious thing dark matter is slightly better understood it is something that is uh, that interacts only gravitationally it does not interact via the electromagnetic interaction or the weak interaction or the strong interaction it only interacts with ordinary matter via the force of gravity so this could be some for form of a purely gravitating particle or it could be a class a family of particles we seriously don't know at this point we have a number of theories but as of now there is absolutely uh, no direction there are many theories some are some are more more uh, so some theories are more in vogue right now some theories are less in vogue but none of these theories has ever come close to being proven or or in any way at all so that is what dark matter is and how did we discover dark matter is an interesting story so when we look at uh, galaxies we can calculate the amount of mass in a galaxy based on we can calculate the amount of mass in a galaxy based on the the light output of the galaxy so we can estimate the number of stars and the mass 
that is in a galaxy and then we can uh, and we know that galaxies they rotate around their uh, their axis or around their center so based on the laws of physics and the amount of mass a galaxy contains based on the light it emits we can uh, tentatively uh, estimate or predict how fast its arms will be rotating how fast how fast they will be going around the center of the galaxy and the predictions never match observations the predictions are in line are supposed to be in line with kepler's second law in case you have studied that but what we find is that it doesn't work that way the galaxy's arms move at a very different rate so let me show that it's it's called rotation curves and this is what it is so this white dashed line over here if you can see my uh, pointer the white dashed line is what we expect from the visible disk of of a typical galaxy this is based on estimations on calculations based on the laws of physics and based on the amount of uh, ma matter we can observe and what we see is very different the yellow and blue points are observational evidence and they are very very different so the rotation curves of galaxies are very different they rotate faster than what we would expect them to and and the the best way to explain this discrepancy is to hypothesize that the galaxies contain some invisible matter which is which far exceeds the visible matter so this is what we call a dark matter halo and this explains the discrepancy in the rotation curves of of galaxies so this is how the idea of dark matter first emerged and then now we have seen other evidence of dark matter for example gravitational lensing etc so that in brief is dark matter what is antimatter antimatter is essentially antiparticles see ordinary matter like us right or our bodies etc everything we know is composed of uh, subatomic particles protons neutrons electrons and so forth right that is our ordinary baryonic matter and and hadronic matter now antimatter is composed of anti protons anti neutrons anti electrons so an antiparticle is has the same exact same mass as a regular particle but it's charged its charge is flipped it's opposite so an anti proton has a negative charge and the same mass as a regular proton which has a positive charge an an anti electron or a positron has a positive charge and the same mass as a regular electron and anti neutrons also exist which have uh, which have anti quarks instead of the regular quarks which make up a neutron so antimatter happens uh, it it manifests itself at the baryonic level and even at the quark level so so that's what antimatter is it's essentially uh, it has opposite charges and certain quantum numbers are also uh, different but the masses are the same so an anti proton and a positron could get together and combine to form an atom of anti hydrogen so that's what antimatter antimatter or antimatter is uh, the the thing about antimatter is that it immediately annihilates when it comes into contact with regular matter so if a proton would come into contact with an anti proton they would immediately annihilate annihilate each other and give off photons so these two masses they will combine and produce pure energy in the form of, of in the form of photons by the very famous equation which we all know e equals mc squared so it is very difficult to uh, 
so antimatter has been observed it it is produced regularly in uh, large uh, colliders such as the large hadron collider and other such uh, uh, instruments it's also emitted in in certain forms of radiation for example you have positrons that are emitted from certain kinds of radiation which has given rise to this technology called positron emission tomography pet you know about the pet scans pet scans so that is a, a technology which has been developed because of the emission of positrons which is antimatter from radiation and so there are various ways of producing antimatter but it is very difficult to store it because like i said the moment it comes into contact with regular matter it it just explodes it it gives off a large amount of energy so to store antimatter you would have to keep you would have to confine it in a pure vacuum you could you cannot even have a single molecule of oxygen or nitrogen or anything in there and it has to be confined in the center of 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 a container which is vacuum which has vacuum so you would need some form of magnetic field to confine it there so it's very difficult to produce any quantity any significant quantity of antimatter and it's even more difficult to store it so that is what antimatter is dark matter and antimatter are very different things and dark matter is something which is even more different so i hope that answers your question anish next question this is by bhabo pradhan if our universe expansion accelerates so how does our universe get an external force to accelerate this is a brilliant question if i would have asked this question in school or college they would have told me that i'm stupid this is a stupid question but it's not a stupid question it is questions such as these that that basically make us explore the concepts and clarify the concepts properly so if you ask this question and you get the answer then you will understand the concept better so this is a great question and it's a very valid question the universe is excel it's expand the universe is expanding first of all and secondly this expansion is accelerating it's getting faster so what is the force that is causing this is it is there something outside the universe that is that is uh, imparting some sort of energy or force into this universe is that what's driving this expansion or is there some other mechanism brilliant question so the answer lies in what we call dark energy so let me go back to this uh, let me share that image once again here we are so like i mentioned uh, like this pie chart tells you about about 68 almost 70% of the mat- mass energy content of the universe is dark energy so we don't know what this is we know that it it functions as a kind of repulsive gravity as if it's a it's an anti gravity kind of force it it pushes objects apart it pushes things apart but only at the very largest scales so the the density of dark energy in the universe is is very 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 less it's less than 10 to the minus 30th 10 to the minus 30 grams per cubic centimeter so you can see it's it's very very dilute and that's why in this room nothing is moving apart because it is so incredibly dilute and yet un- the universe space interstellar space is mostly empty space most of it is just empty and it is this enormous 
this enormity of emptiness and the this dilute dark energy which is inside it so all of this dark energy in this empty space it adds up and it adds up to almost 70% of the mass energy of the of the universe so because it is so dilute it doesn't have any effect at small scales like in the room that i am in or in our solar system or even even our galaxy or even in our local galaxy cluster but it does push objects apart like super clusters of galaxy etc at the very largest cosmic scales at the very largest astrophysical scales so that is what dark energy is it is some kind of force it may be a new new force of of nature or it could be some substance some kind of fluid some we don't know what it is but we know it is there and we know it's it's accelerating the expansion of the universe it's essentially creating new space and new new space time everywhere so new space time is somehow emerging out of the amount of space time that we currently have and that is causing the the universe to expand faster and faster and faster away so that is what dark energy is it is the it is one of the biggest mysteries that we have in astrophysics today it is one of the biggest unsolved problems in astrophysics and uh, we, we don't even know where to begin right now we don't have we have some some theories some hypotheses etc but there is at present no way to confirm or or refute these theories and hypotheses so so to answer your question once again our universe expands and its expansion is accelerating because of something within the universe itself this so called dark energy which is either a fluid or a repulsive form of form of gravity or some sort of force which is causing the universe to expand there is nothing coming from outside the universe as far as we know but we don't know because we don't know what's outside the universe we cannot look outside the universe because like i said earlier we can only observe a small portion of the universe we don't know what's beyond that and we can't even reach that uh, that uh, that cosmic horizon because we don't have the means to do, to do that so we don't know what's outside the universe do we have a multiverse do we have an anti universe of some kind we don't know so so maybe your question is valid maybe there could be something from outside the universe that somehow imbuing our universe and its space time with some force or energy that is well i think that's a valid hypothesis it is a valid hypothesis because it can't be proved right now but yeah there could be some such mechanism but the to the to the best of our understanding and 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 the theory that's most widely accepted is this uh theory of dark energy which is some kind of force or some kind of substance or some fluid that acts as if it is a repulsive form of gravity and it actually creates more space time as it goes along so i hope that answers your question that's a great question this is by akash bhuller hello akash good to see you again could you please explain what is cosmic microwave background radiation good question cmbr so the cosmic okay so let's say i have a telescope okay i take the telescope i look out into the interstellar space and i see darkness and i see some stars and some galaxies but it's mostly black it's mostly dark right now you can take the most powerful telescope that you have the most powerful optical telescope that you have and you will again see you will be able to see many more stars and galaxies you will be able to see much further away but you will see this darkness and yet when you have a very powerful and sensitive radio telescope for example 
then you detect that a certain kind of noise in the background it's as if there is a certain glow a very very weak glow that is that permeates the entire universe but it's not visible to the naked eye and the wavelength of this glow the wavelength of this radiation it is electromagnetic radiation its wavelength is about from a millimeter to a meter long and it's extremely cold it's about 2.7 or so degrees above degrees kelvin above absolute zero so it's almost at almost at absolute zero just a little fraction just a little notch above the absolute coldest temperature that you can have in the universe but it is still there and this radiation this ancient glow permeates the entire known universe and what this is is it is the oldest electromagnetic radiation that was that was ever uh, formed in the universe it dates back to about 370000 years after the big bang during the epoch of recombination when the when when protons and electrons first combined to form stable atoms to form stable hydrogen atoms so this is the epoch of recombination and that's when this radiation first was was first formed and this radiation persists to the, to, to this day it was much hotter earlier during that epoch of renormalization uh, recombination today it has become very very cold and its wavelength has shifted it's become very much longer so it's in the microwave wave wavelength and it is the oldest radiation that we know it is almost like the afterglow of the big bang itself almost like that so it tells us a lot about the early about the early universe it is one of the major proofs that we have of the big bang theory the big bang model of cosmology so there are two things that essentially have helped us understand that something called the big bang actually happened the first thing is that there is this accelerating expansion of the universe the cosmic redshift that we see and the second is the detection of this cosmic microwave background radiation so it was first detected in the 1960s by accident purely by accident purely by chance and those lucky guys who discovered it got the nobel prize for just stumbling into it then in the late 1980s the first uh, proper uh, survey of this radiation was done a, a satellite called cosmic Back, background explorer was sent up and it mapped the the distribution of this radiation it found that it is not completely uniform there are n isotropies and and other such uh, patterns so so it is an outcome of of primordial quantum fluctuations in the very early universe which which created regions of less density and more density in over densities etc so we can see that pattern in the distribution of cosmic microwave background radiation today so in the 1980s you had the the cobe satellite then in the early 2000s you had a wmap experiment a new satellite that was pent up it gave it gave us a better understanding of cmbr and then recently uh, about a decade ago or so you had the planck satellite the planck experiment which gave us an even better understanding of this ancient radiation so that is what cosmic microwave background radiation is it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon it it essentially proves that uh, that the big bang actually happened so great question okay this is by avinash 
if photons are massless, then why do they get affected by gravity? Brilliant question. I mean, these are the questions that our school teachers should encourage us to ask. So that's, this is a great question. We know that photons are massless. Photons are packets of electromagnetic radiation. They are localized disturbances in the universal electromagnetic field, which is a field made up of electric and magnetic, magnetic fields. So photons are localized concentrations of energy. And as we know, photons are massless. They contain energy. They have a wavelength. They have a frequency. And this frequency manifests itself in different colors, green, red, maroon, etc. And that's what our brain interprets as colors, these different frequencies. So photons are massless. They travel at the speed of light. And yet they are affected by gravity. Isn't that a great paradox? Gravity is supposed to affect massive objects. If I have a massive object, I, I let it go. It drops to the ground. That is the force of gravity. But we find that even light is affected by gravity. Even the trajectory, the, the path of light itself is bent by gravity. How on earth does it happen? So there are two ways of looking at it. Let's look at it first from the perspective of general relativity, which is geometrodynamics. It is the four it is the dynamics of light and energy and mass or mass energy and light in the arena of four dimensional space time. So wherever you have a mass, it's going to warp space time, it's going to curve space time and anything that tra travels in a straight line will have to will be forced by this curvature to travel in a curve because the the fabric of space time itself has curved, it has warped. And that affects light too, because light also travels within space-time. It cannot travel outside of space-time. So since space-time is curved by a mass, even the trajectory of a light beam would get curved because of that. So that's the simplest way of looking at why is light affected by gravity. The other way of looking at it is to look at it from the perspective of quantum mechanics. Now, the most famous equation in the world is E equals mc squared. Every mass has an equivalent energy and every energy has an equivalent mass. So light has energy. We all know that. So light, because of its energy, has an equivalent mass. And that is, one could say, what causes it to be affected by the force of gravity. So that is a different way of, look, of looking at it. So there are two ways of looking at it. They are they both give, the, give us different ideas, but they both essentially give us a simple handle on why light despite being massless photons despite being massless are very much affected by gravity so that's a good question very good question this is by pavan acharya three questions in one good good i like the initiative question one please talk about the constituents of interstellar interstellar space what is it made up of Number two, if matter, antimatter annihilation produces pure energy, can it be a viable energy source in the future? And three, what's the difference between quasars and pulsars? Okay, what are the constituents of interstellar space? At the macro level, it's almost empty. It is almost, it is a better vacuum than anything we can produce on this earth with our best technology. So interstellar space is mostly empty. 
it does have a very very small density of molecules and atoms and cosmic ray protons antiprotons and atomic nuclei and all that but that is a very 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 minuscule density it also has some dust particles and so on but it's mostly empty it's it's a better vacuum than anything anything we can produce on earth it also has stars and galaxies and nebulae and dark matter and dark energy and at the at the quantum scale it the, the empty space is not empty it is teeming with uh, virtual particles the quantum fluctuations so what's a quantum fluctuation it is a temporary and random disturbance or fluctuation in the energy of a point in space which is caused by the constraints imposed by heisenberg's uncertainty principle so there are two ways of looking at the uncertainty principle one is the position and momentum uh, way of looking at it and the other one is energy and time so the so what happens is that it, in, in empty space just randomly spontaneously you have this particle antiparticle pairs being formed so an, a particle and an antiparticle anti are formed and this uh, they quickly recombine and uh, disintegrate so even though this violates the law of conservation of energy you cannot have energy uh, form, uh, uh, coming out of vacuum yet this happens but it happens so fast that it does not violate heisenberg's uncertainty principle and that's why you have this quantum this vast uh, array of quantum fluctuations in empty space so this is the energy of 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 uh, vacuum it's called vacuum energy so that is what we have in interstellar space in vacuum at the quantum level now question number 2 if matter antimatter annihilation produces pure energy can it be a viable energy source in the future theoretically yes it could be a very good very powerful and very efficient energy source it would have uh, no pollution it would just produce pure energy the so yes theoretically hypothetically it is a very viable energy source in the future a very small amount of uh, matter antimatter could uh, give us a very large amount of energy a 1 rupee coin of matter and a 1 rupee coin of antimatter if they annihilate together they could produce an explosion far larger than the the hiroshima atomic blast so that's the kind of energy you have in such such small uh, in such small amounts of matter and antimatter so it can be a very useful and very uh, very powerful source of energy in the future the problem is that we first of all don't have any means of of producing any significant quantities of antimatter right the little antimatter we, pro we produce is mostly done in uh, particle accelerators and colliders and we don't have any proper way of storing it because it is so hard to store the moment it interacts with anything any ordinary matter it essentially explodes and gives out photons and gamma rays and and x rays so that is the thing so we have to keep it in a pure vacuum in a perfect vacuum and a perfect vacuum doesn't even exist in interstellar space so it is very hard to bring such a technology into fruition even though it is theoretically very much possible so it is it, it is something that's very challenging and i don't see it happening in the next 100 years at least but who knows let's see so it's a, it is potentially a great form of energy great source of energy but as of now we are nowhere near achieving uh, 
even the first baby steps in the direction. And question number three, what is the difference between quasars and pulsars? Uh, good question. Let's start with quasars. Uh, quasars are active galactic nuclei that are extremely energetic. So what's a galactic nucleus? It is whatever is uh, located at the very center of a galaxy. So a galaxy is like a cyclone. It has the same shape as a cyclone or a typhoon or a hurricane, a spiral shape. Mostly spiral galaxies are like that. So let's, let's just take spiral galaxies as, as an example. So at the center, at the very core of a spiral galaxy, you typically have a supermassive black hole. Our own Milky Way galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the center. And we have recently taken uh, an image of another supermassive black, uh, supermassive black hole at the, uh, the core of another galaxy. So most galaxies have supermassive black holes at their center. And in some cases, in some galaxies, there is a very energetic accretion disk around this supermassive black hole. Such a supermassive black hole is typically of the order of millions or even billions of solar masses. So that's how large it is. It has an enormous gravity. And in these active, active galactic nuclei, you have an active process of accretion. So what's happening is that you have stars and other, other material that is being torn apart by the gravitational forces. So these stars are shredded, ripped, and there's this enormous disk of superheated material around the black hole. And it's all trying to fall into the, into the black hole in a vortex fashion. And it is this immense amount of matter, superheated matter that's falling into this monstrous black hole that, that gives off incredible amounts of radiation. So this is what's known as a quasar, a quasar, a quasi-stellar object or a, or a quasi-stellar radio source. There are two acronyms. So the luminosity of a quasar is incredible. A typical quasar gives off more light and radiation in one second than a thousand Milky Way type galaxies can give off in one second. So the Milky Way has approximately 400 billion stars. A thousand Milky Ways would have about four, how many is it? 400 trillion stars. And a single quasar gives off more light and radiation than 400 trillion stars. So you can imagine the incredible power and luminos luminosity of this object, of this astrophysical object. It's a monstrous astrophysical object. So that is what a quasar is. It's an active galactic nucleus that is incredibly luminous and nothing can survive in its vicinity. I can guarantee that there's no life that we can understand, that we can envisage in the, in the vicinity of any quasar. So that's what a quasar is. What's a pulsar? <clears throat> so a pulsar is a neutron star that spins very fast and it gives off uh, electromagnetic radiation two pulses or two jets of electromagnetic radiation from its magnetic poles so let me show you what a pulsar typically looks like here we have a typical pulsar this is a neutron star that gives off uh, electromagnetic radiation from its magnetic poles it's, it it, it uh, has this kind of lighthouse effect. So if you are 
in the uh, in the path of this light beam, then you will see a very regular uh, pulse of radiation from it. So there are certain pulsars that give off this radiation. If you are in in its path, they will give off this uh, pulse of radiation every few seconds or every hundred or so seconds. And there are these so-called millisecond pulsars too, which give off which give off these pulses once every millisecond or so. So these pulsars were first discovered uh, because of radio astronomy, etc. And what was found is that we had the, we had these beep, beeps coming out of interstellar space, these beeping sounds in the radio frequencies, and nobody could explain what these what these were. People thought that these may be extraterrestrials who are trying to communicate with us. But later we found out that, that these were actually neutron stars that give off these these two uh, jets of of radiation. And because the spin is so fast, because of conservation of angular momentum, that's why we have these very rapid pulses and extremely precisely timed pulses of radio waves and other other forms of radiation that come out of there. So that is what a pulsar is. It's a neutron star that gives off these two jets, these two beams of light and radio waves. Okay, good questions, uh, Pawan. So that's the difference between quasars and pulsars. Very different objects, very different astrophysical objects. Okay, next question. Huh. Okay, similar question. What are pulsars and what's the difference between neutron stars and magnetars? So I just explained what a pulsar is. Now, what is the difference between neutron stars and magnetars? So let's start with neutron stars. A neutron star is a core collapse remnant of a is the is the is the remnant of a supernova of a core collapse supernova. So typically you have a, a neutron star is formed after the supernova of a supermassive star. A star that is typically between 10 and 25 solar masses, a supergiant star. Right? So when a supergiant star reaches the end of its life, it it essentially stops burning fuel uh, in, in a fusion reaction. So it typically happens when you have the formation of iron in its core. That's when the fusion reaction, reaction stops because iron is not nuclear fuel, it is nuclear ash. So the moment iron is formed from fusion, so fusion happens by the fusion of, of uh, two, two nuclei. Hydrogen nuclei form uh, fused together to form helium, and then you have heavier elements that are, that are formed. You have uh, you have oxygen, you have carbon, you have neon, and then it reaches the stage of iron. And once all the neon is used up, and you you reach iron, that's when a star is essentially dead. It has just a few seconds of life left, and that's when stellar collapse happens. And after the collapse, uh, when when the st star starts imploding, the core of the star is really compressed very, very strongly. And protons and electrons combine and form neutrons. And so the core becomes just formed of neutrons only. Only neutrons, nothing else. And then the supernova ha happens with whatever uh, material is left in the star. And at the end of the supernova, what is left behind at the center of where the star once was, is a neutron star. So a neutron star is 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 typically a small star between 1.4 solar masses and and around two solar masses. Anything larger than three solar masses, it will become a black hole. 
So that is what a neutron star is. It is the most compact and dense object in the known universe, apart from black holes. Uh, so that is what a neutron star is. It's formed of, it, it is composed almost entirely of neutrons. Now, what's a pulsar? Like I said, a pulsar is a neutron star, which spins very rapidly and gives off two beams of electromagnetic radiation, typically radio waves, in two opposite directions. And it pulses extremely uh, in a very periodic manner. What is a magnetar? A magnetar is, again, another neutron star, which has an extremely powerful magnetic field. So the magnetic field of a magnetar is typically hundreds of millions of times stronger than the most powerful man-made magnet available on Earth. It's an extremely powerful magnetic field. It is trillions of times more powerful than the magnetic field of the Earth itself. Now, it is the evolution and decay of this magnetic field in a magnetar that gives off extremely powerful bursts of radiation, typically in the X-ray and gamma-ray spectra. And this is what's known as a soft gamma repeater. So this is the astrophysical source of the phenomenon known as the soft gamma repeater uh, phenomenon, right? So that's what a magnetar is. It is a neutron star with a very, very incredibly powerful magnetic field. These are incredibly interesting, fascinating, and exotic objects. And this is the kind of uh, phenomena that the laws of nature throw up. So, great question. Okay, this is by Priyam Sisodia. We know for a fact that the universe is expanding because galaxies are moving away from us. Then why is Andromeda moving towards our galaxy? Is it because the Milky Way and Andromeda are moving towards the great attractor? Very good question. So, we know that the universe is expanding. I went into that in some detail. And yet, uh, you are right. Your, your observation is correct. The Milky Way and our closest neighboring galaxy, Andromeda, we are these two galaxies are moving towards each other. And about in about four and a half or five billion years from today, the two galaxies will co collide. There will be a collision or a merger of sorts. And they will eventually combine together to form a massive, a more massive galaxy, which people call Milkomeda or something like that. So that's about five billion plus years in the future. So if the universe is expanding, if the expansion is accelerating, then why is the Milky Way and Andromeda, why are these two galaxies moving towards each other? And is it because of the great attractor? So what is the great attractor? It is a gravitational anomaly that is invisible to us. It is, it is uh, present in the local supercluster, the, uh, the, what is it called? It's called the Lania Kea supercluster, which is about, a, it's a cluster of about 10,000 or so galaxies. The Milky Way and Andromeda are part of that. So there is at the center of mass of this supercluster a gravitational anomaly which we are not able to see from here because it lies in the in the in the beyond our the plane of our galaxy itself. So we cannot observe it directly from here from from the Earth. So it is a gravitational anomaly. It is a very very massive uh, object of some kind, uh, and it is about two hundred or two hundred and fifty million light years away from where we are. So is it what is causing Andromeda and us to come towards each other? No, it is not. 
Andromeda and the Milky Way are just two and a half million light years away from each other. So they are much closer to each other than the Laniakea supercluster, uh, the, the great attractor at the center of the Laniakea supercluster. So the reason these two galaxies are coming towards each other is because the expansion of the universe happens at the largest scales. The density of dark energy is less than is on the of the order of 10 raised to minus 30 grams per cubic centimeter, which is extremely, incredibly dilute. So it does not affect uh, space-time at local scales, at the scales of uh, galaxy clusters and, and the like. It only affects space-time at the very, very, very largest scales. At the scales of superstructures and dark matter filaments and the very largest uh, structures in the universe. So that's why the local gravity of these two galaxies is able to overpower the very weak effect, very weak local effect of dark energy. And that's why they are moving towards each other. It has nothing to do with the so-called great attractor, which we really don't understand what it is. It's probably something we are unable to see because our galaxy, the plane of our galaxy gets in the way. So to answer your question, it's because in the local, in the local scale, gravity overpowers dark energy. That is the answer in brief. Okay, this is by Rahul. This is by Rahul Ranganath. Do you think the arrow of time can be reversed? There have been reports that entropy can be reversed on a microscopic scale, which can in which in turn can reverse the flow of time. If it can be done on a micro scale, isn't it a matter of time until we get a major breakthrough on the macroscopic scale? Wouldn't that violate the second law of thermodynamics? Okay, good question. Entropy is a measure of the statistical disorder of any system. Right? So we can definitely reverse entropy on a small scale. For example, I have um, you, you can have a crystal or you can have a, a, a bottle. So this is a very orderly structure. It is a man-made uh, object. There is no disorder in this uh, except for the water. If I empty the water, then it's a very ordered system. Of course, it will have oxygen molecules, <laughs> air molecules and all. But you get my point. So we can create local uh, regions of low gravity. Our brain is the lowest of low entropy. Sorry. Our human brain is the most complex and most powerful biological computer or any kind of computer known in known to us in the known universe. So that is a region of incredibly low entropy because it is so well ordered. So you can have localized regions of very low entropy. And yet, to produce a local small region of low entropy, you have to, it, it is inevitable that to produce low entropy local locally, you will end up increasing the entropy of the overall system that you're in. So we, we are part of the environment that we are in, we have an atmosphere. So to produce something like a plastic bottle, you have to do some melting of, of plastic and some other mechanical processes, which produce heat and heat is uh, which it, it increases the the entropy of the atmosphere. So no matter what process you do, you may be able to decrease the entropy at a local level, but you will overall in the system end up increasing its entropy, or at the very best keeping the entropy the same. So, so that's the answer to your question. It can be reversed or in, on a on a small scale, but it cannot reverse the uh, okay about the flow of time. So it's a hypothesis that time is related to entropy, that time may be an 
an emergent phenomenon. It's a hypothesis. We don't know if it's true or not. We don't have any valid or coherent or well-accepted uh, theory of time. We don't know if it is a fundamental property of the universe, whether it's an emergent phenomenon, whether uh, you have you may whether you can have molecules or atoms of time. We it it appears that time doesn't even exist to some extent on at the quantum scale. Past, present, and future seem to be I mean uh, meaning, meaningless concepts at the quantum level too. So we don't really know what time is. It is a great mystery. It is one of the big mysteries of physics, and is it connected to entropy? Is it connected to thermodynamics? There are certain speculations and hypotheses, but there is no actual uh, uh, falsifiable theory of this. So we don't know. I don't know if it is, uh, as of now, without sufficient data, I cannot say yes or no either way. Maybe, right? So I don't know if the arrow of time can be reversed. It is uh, possible that you may have an anti-universe in which time flows backwards. So there is this uh, problem called the baryon asymmetry problem. We only see matter in the universe. We don't see any antimatter. But the universe, according to all the known theories, should have produced equal amounts of matter and antimatter. So where is all the antimatter? So there is a theory that, there is, that the Big Bang produced two universes, a, a universe and an anti-universe. The universe that we are in is full of regular matter, and the our counterpart counterpart anti-universe has antimatter, and maybe the time the era of time flows in the opposite direction in that universe. So that again is a hypothesis; it's just a theory. We have no way of uh, either proving it or falsifying it. So as of now, with the understanding of the laws of nature that we have, this question about the era of time cannot be answered at this stage. We are still taking baby steps in our understanding of the phenomenon of time. But this is a great question. Okay, Sorajit Ghosh asks, is space really empty? If yes, then how do rockets propel themselves forward? So like I said earlier, space is mostly empty, but at the quantum scale, it's full of quantum fluctuations in the various fields that are a part of space uh, of, of space at the quantum level. Uh, that is uh, something that comes out of the uh, theory that is called quantum field theory. But for the sake of for, for macroscopic objects like rockets, it doesn't matter at all. These quantum fluctuations are immaterial. So if space is empty, like it, it mostly is, then how do rockets propel themselves forward? It's a good question. So if I want to, if I were to push on a wall, then it will push me back, right? If I were to impart a force, a strong force on the floor, then I'll be able to jump upwards. So you need to push against something in order to get a reaction. And that's what we experience in our ordinary day-to-day -day life. Now, let's assume that you are standing on a skateboard, okay? You're standing on a skateboard, which is a very movable platform, and you're holding a machine gun. And you let it go, bang, 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 bang. So each time you fire a bullet, the bullet flow, bullet flies off at a, at a few kilometers per second. And because of the law, because of Newton's third law of motion, action-reaction, you will re, you will experience a massive recoil in the rifle. And because you're on a skateboard, you will be physically pushed back, and the skateboard will roll in the opposite direction. So even though you're not pushing against the wall or anything at all, you have this action and reaction phenomenon. 
this happens even if you're standing on ice ice is a very slippery slippery uh, surface there is very less friction so again if you fire a rifle standing on ice you're going to go shooting in the opposite direction so this happens even in space if you were able to fire a rifle in space the bullet would go in one direction and you would go back in the other direction and this is basically uh, the conservation of linear momentum it's it's uh, th- that is the principle that's behind this and that is how rockets work so a rocket may be in the vacuum of space it ejects a very energetic and powerful stream of gases from its nozzle and this ejection of gases makes the rocket move in the other direction and that's how rocket propulsion works in the vacuum of space i hope that is able to answer your question one more question before we end priyam asks that it was hypothesized gravity should be excluded from the set of fundamental forces as gravity is curvature of space time not a force instead a new force called quintessence should replace gravity as a fundamental force i support this hypothesis because gravity works on larger scales and the other three forces work on the quantum level and the graviton the boson for gravity doesn't exist the other forces have their own bosons what's my take on this okay so we don't know how gravity works at the uh, at the quantum level we uh, it is incorrect to say that it doesn't work at the quantum level all we know is that we don't have a coherent and valid theory of gravity at the quantum level we are unable to quantize space time at the micro at the microscopic level quantum field theory the equations of quantum field theory the the laws of quantum field theory don't work in curved space time they break down so there is a gap in our understanding it is not a gap in in the laws of nature so we don't know about gravity is there is there actually some quantum uh, theory of gravity does gra- gravity actually work on the quantum scale or is it something that emerges only in in geometry in the geometry of space time as of now we don't know does the graviton exist we haven't thus far found any evidence of the hypothetical graviton it doesn't mean it doesn't exist it means we haven't found it it is a valid theory and it is a falsifiable theory so we are working towards either validating it or falsifying it now about so should gravity be excluded from the set of forces as of now no because it has not been proven to not be a force it could still be a force at the quantum scale it is a matter of being able to prove or disprove this particular thing and basically we are trying to formulate a coherent theory of quantum gravity now what is quintessence quintessence is a uh, quintessence is a scalar field it is a it is a dynamic field that is it is not uh, it was not introduced to replace gravity it was introduced as a means of trying to uh, explain what dark energy is so like i said quintessence is a hypothetical scalar field that permeates space time it's dynamic it's it's time dependent so it is it can be either attractive or repulsive depending on various circumstances and conditions so it is it is hypothesized or theorized that quintessence was attractive in the first 3 or 4 billion years of the universe lifetime and after that it became a repulsive force and as we know dark energy was less in the past it is more today it is increasing so quintessence is a hypothetical or theoretical attempt to explain dark energy it cannot replace 
gravity itself. Yeah, quintessence is can be thought of as a possible hypothetical fifth force of nature. But as of now, this theory is uh, is essentially in its infancy, and there is no way of either proving it or 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 falsifying it as we speak today. So there are many such theories that are attempting to uh, resolve these massive problems that we are facing and these enormous unanswered questions that we have as of now. But I would not, as of now, try to want to exclude gravity as a fundamental force. So the, I hope that answers your question, Priyam. Let me uh, take a couple of questions from the live chat before we end this. Like I said, I'm going to do more episodes of Astrophysics. You, you have asked me so many brilliant questions. I'm going to have to do more episodes. So I'm going to take a couple of more questions quickly and then we will end for today. But we will do this again. Okay, let me see a couple of good questions if I can find some. <clears throat> this is by... One second. This is by... Sayantan Majumdar, do the laws of matter hold inside a black hole? If yes, where do they go once it enters? So we don't know what's inside a black hole. We have absolutely no idea of what exists beyond the event horizon of a black hole. Uh, the theory of general relativity tells you that space-time curves to an infinite extent at the center of a black hole and the density of matter also becomes infinity at the center of a black hole. So this is called the so-called singularity. So this most likely indicates that the laws of uh, general relativity, the theory of general relativity does not hold at the quantum scale. That's what it most likely indicates. It The, uh, the so-called singularity most likely doesn't really exist. But as of now, with the laws of physics that we have, we don't know what's inside a black hole. We know that a black hole has mass. We know that a black hole has angular momentum. And we know that a black hole has charge, it has a magnetic field. Apart from that, we don't really know anything else about what's inside a black hole. What happens once matter goes inside? Does it get converted into energy? Does it get compressed to an infinitely massive, uh, infinitely dense point? As of now, we don't know. And that's what makes black hole physics so exciting that there is so little we know. So there is so much to discover. Okay, let's see. One more question. One more question. Let me find, let me find some good question. Quantum loop gravity, wave-based dimensions. Can I explain singularity? I did that. <laughs> okay. What's the probable shape of the universe? In one sentence, in one word, it's probably a sphere. The observable universe is spherical. The, the universe beyond our cosmic horizon, we don't know. Okay. Amresh asks, what is LIGO and its application in real life? Can we cross the solar system and enter into another? Hypothetically, we could cross the solar system and reach the nearest star system, which is Proxima Centauri. Uh, it has an exoplanet called Proxima Centauri b. It is possible. We may be able to send uh, probes within the next 30, 40, 50 years, definitely. So it's possible. But these are robotic probes. 
human beings still cannot uh, do that in one human lifetime what is ligo it's a gravitational wave detector it detects gravitational waves based on interference patterns produced by laser laser beams in very short so it is essentially a large michelson interferometer kind of uh, apparatus that uses the interference of laser pulses and the effect it has on mirrors etc to detect waves and and distortions in space time caused by gravitational waves that's what it is i think that's all for today thank you guys for your brilliant questions i'm going to end for now we will have a different session later i will do more sessions on astrophysics quantum physics and all of this i know you guys are really interested in this so we'll do many more of this but for today it's uh, this session ends now and i will see you tomorrow thank you for participating have a great day have a great night bye